Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth, love in them. It's going to be amazing. I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. I'd like to welcome you to the How Humans Work podcast. Thank you. Christopher Lowry, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. And we were just starting to talk about your background in, I guess, zoology. Would you call your studies in amphibians a, a kind of zoological beginnings of your career? Exactly. Yeah. My PhD was in, well, my undergraduate degree at University of Wyoming was in the Department of Zoology. And my PhD was in the Department of Zoology at Oregon State University. So very much so. And how did you find yourself interested in the, we were starting to talk there a second ago about that conserved function of stress across vertebrates, across every animal that has a spine, amphibians, fish, birds, mammals, reptiles. Where did that start to emerge, your interest in that, that part of the zoological understanding of, of how, how species, how animals are in their nature, yeah? Yeah, I think... Even before I went to college, I had, I had a really strong interest in, in nature and biology. Uh, I think even at one point I imagined myself being a game warden, you know, working out in the field. And um, when I went to the University of Wyoming, my degree was in zoology. And so I was, I was surrounded by zoologists who had comparative perspectives and my, some of my most important courses were, you know, comparative vertebrate uh, anatomy, which was taught by Bill Gern, and comparative environmental physiology, which was taught by Hank Harlow, and uh, animal behavior taught by David Duvall. And all of these courses were taught from comparative perspectives and understanding essentially vertebrate biology. Um, and that's really what that was my frame of that was my frame of reference when when I when I started learning about physiology and behavior was the comparative perspective. And for people like myself who didn't really get biology in high school and the value and of basically I'm a late adopter in my life of really starting to deepen my relationship with the the biological story and the biosphere and the ecosphere and evolution and just finding so much joy later in life with these topics. What's the value that you, that you would summarize that brings about comparative physiology, comparative behavior, this, this tradition you got in your zoological training? What's it, what's it give us to help us understand our own sense of who we are as humans for you? Yeah, I think, you know, I gained an appreciation for just how highly conserved uh, vertebrates are in terms of, you know, physiology, like stress physiology. Um, You know, amphibians have the same neuropeptide uh, that, that drives the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal hormone axis that humans do. 
corticotropin releasing factor. And that's, that's how I started my research was studying the actions of corticotropin releasing factor in amphibians and how that affects behavior and neurobiology and serotonin systems in the brain, for example. So just an appreciation that yes, these systems are highly conserved and the, you know, the understanding they're highly conserved because they're really important and they, they're necessary for survival. So what does CRF do, corticotropin releasing factor do in amphibian frogs? Yeah, so corticotropin releasing factor is also called corticotropin releasing hormone. It's a 41 amino acid peptide. And it was, you know, the, the whole story of the discovery of CRH is fascinating in and of itself because it was discovered by Wiley Vale and his colleagues at the Salk Institute. And to identify this peptide, they processed 500,000 sheep hypothalami uh, and in a series of steps, they fractionated these, this brain tissue in massive columns and used bioassays to detect fractions that could induce the secretion of adrenocorticotropic hormone from the pituitary gland. And ultimately they came down to this one peptide that's 41 amino acids long that has this capacity to induce ACTH release from the pituitary. Okay, so for all the listeners who don't understand the acronyms of hormones and regulation and brain tissue, what's the function when ACTH is released through the CRF? Yeah, so this was this is all related to something called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It's our primary stress hormone axis. So CRH is the neuropeptide that's made by neurons in the hypothalamus of the brain. These neurons have projections down to what's called the median eminence and have uh, synaptic terminals that secrete CRH, CRF into the portal circulation. And that's then transported by the blood to the pituitary, which induces the release of adrenocorticotropic, adrenocor sorry, it's a tough one to say, adrenocorticotropic hormone or ACTH. And then ACTH enters the general circulation until it re reaches the adrenal cortex, where it binds to receptors and in induces the release of cortisol in humans or corticosterone in, in amphibians, for example. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. nice. yeah, and these are, these are the primary stress hormones that are really the mediators of our hormonal response to stress exposure. And that whole cascade is essentially identical in uh, humans, rats, mice, primates, reptiles, amphibians, birds, and fish. It's amazing how that whole architecture of the spine and the brain and the and the stress hormones. And I love that we're starting to talk about it. And I wanted to help build context for our conversation today and say, first, I was lucky enough to be your student for a day this past March when you're on a little tour talking about stress and the microbiome. And one of the things I did when I was working through my notes is I, I made this this note here. I'll sh I'll show you. And I, it's like oh, nice, yeah, I see it. And so the words I made a star, and on the star on each point of the star of the five point star, I wrote the word one word: behavior, stress, inflammation, brain, gut. And I really felt what you gave that day was a a really deep connection between stress, brain, which we just started talking about, but also uh, 
behavior, gut, and inflammation. And in the center, I wrote the word interoception. And my hope today is that we can have a conversation that will help illuminate those connections between the behavior, inflammation, stress, gut, and the brain as it relates to our sense of self, as it relates to our feeling of who we are in interoception. How does that sound to you? That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, lo- I love the fact <laughs> Am that- I in your wheelhouse? Yeah, you're in my wheelhouse. I love the fact that you made a star and, you know, you connected all of these, these uh, concepts and, you know, it's essentially a concept map. And, you know, in my initial training in stress biology, it was very much focused on stress hormones and the HPA axis, which we just discussed. Right. But in a broader context, you know, in, in 1981, when CRH was isolated, we understood its role in the HP axis, but it, it very quickly became apparent that CRH also controls the fight or flight response. Yeah. And so that's a second component of the stress response that's extremely important. And the fight or flight response is essentially activation of the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And CRH not only activates HP axis, but it's very potent in activating the sympathetic nervous system response. So there was a large um, field of research looking at how CRH impacted the autonomic nervous system and the fight or flight response. So that was exciting. Later, it emerged that CRH is also playing a role in the immune response to stress exposure. And I would have to say that, you know, early concepts of stress response were really focused on HP axis, autonomic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system responses, uh, and behavior. And and it became clear that CRH is very important in control of behavior. Uh, I would say our understanding of how CRH and stress affect the immune system kind of lagged behind these other fields of HPA axis and uh, fight or flight responses. But it's become very clear that that's an, a very important component of our response to stress. And we're learning more and more about what how stress impacts the immune system and why that's important. Uh, and then it was only later, much later, actually, that it became clear that the microbiome is playing an important role in uh, responses to stress. That was one of the things that really blew my mind about being at your lecture and your training that day was the degree at which the microbiome is influencing us. And I want to talk about the gut microbiome with you as it relates to stress, but I don't, it seems to me as I was reviewing the notes and thinking about this conversation today, understanding some of the structure of the gut is actually helpful, breaking down that the ner- the nerves that are there, the enteric nervous system, some of the structure of the gut lining, and then seeing the microbiome in relationship to that. Do you think that's the right way to kind of help people come into this knowledge of what the microbiome is doing in the gut, or would you approach it from a different direction? No, I think that's a good place to start because it's important to understand the the, the structural elements of the gut and the microbiome itself and, and the interface between the microbiome and us as humans. Uh, the, yeah, this concept of the enteric, or not this concept, this, this understanding of the body in terms of the enteric nervous system? I mean, if we talk about the gut, we're really talking about the part of the gastrointestinal tract from the stomach to the end of the gastrointestinal tract, the anus. And 
this um, gastrointestinal tract essentially contains trillions of microbes, which we call our microbiome. And these microbes are uh, in the lumen of the gut, so the, the space uh, inside the intestines, for example. And they're also, in some cases, very closely associated with the lining uh, of the lumen, the mucosal lining, specifically the mucus layer that is separating the, the gut contents, the food and fiber and uh, the bacteria from our bodies. Underneath that mucus layer is a layer of cells called epithelial cells. And it really astounds me every time I think about it that the, the barrier between these trillions of microbes and our biology, human biology, is a single cell layer thick. And that cell layer is called the epithelial cell layer. It, these cells tend to be kind of cuboidal in shape. They're kind of uh, box-shaped. And they have um, microvilli on their surface that's designed to increase surface area for absorption of nutrients, for example. Um, and, and they have something called tight junctions that hold them together really tightly so that bacteria can't kind of squeeze in between these cells. Um, but the fact that the, the epithelial lining is one cell layer thick means that it's really quite fragile. And what we're learning is that stress can disrupt that barrier between the gut microbiome and the human body. And in fact, we know that this happens in response to stress, that things that we would normally not find in the human body, like lipopolysaccharide, which comes from gram-negative bacteria, uh, or bacteria themselves, are able to get into the body after stress exposures. So stress, through a number of different mechanisms, is disrupting that barrier and allowing at least some bacteria to get into the human body. So the enteric nervous system is important because the enteric nervous system really has multiple functions. One is controlling the gut function itself, so the motility of the gut and local functions of the gut and the gut lining. Uh, but then that communicates with the extrinsic part of the enteric nervous system that can communicate to the brain through multiple pathways, one being something called the vagus nerve and the other being uh, through sensory nerves that travel in sympathetic nerve bundles to the spinal cord. And both of those pathways are clearly important in how the microbiome and the gut can communicate with the brain and ultimately affect physiology and behavior. The picture I'm getting as you're talking about it is there's a there's a very delicate ecology there. It's almost like I'm like, oh, it's 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 kind of like a lily, you know, or <laughs> it's like maybe it's tougher than a lily, but there's this there's this delicate ecology in there. And there's also this incredible sensing and detection system at work in there. Uh, I'm sure you could give the science of what all those names and are, but I have this imagination that's starting to form of like, oh, that most interior place where the exchange between 
nutrients and the microbiome are happening is a, a very sensing and sensitive aspect of the body that's responding and communicating with the spine, the brain, uh, the immune system. Yeah. Is it, am I, am I, am I on the right track in terms of how I'm starting to imagine it? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're very much on the right track. And uh, another thing I think, you know, to give everyone uh, a bit of a 30,000 foot perspective there, it, it's important to recognize that there's multiple ways that the microbiome can communicate with the brain. That includes neurons or neuronal communication, uh, which we talked about in terms of the enteric nervous system. So that's an important means of communication. But there are other mechanisms as well, which are important to highlight uh, up front. One is that bacteria and bacterial products can alter the immune system, and the immune system can, in turn, communicate with the central nervous system, including the brain. And then a third mechanism involves chemicals and metabolites that are produced by the bacteria in the gut, which are essentially non-human chemicals and metabolites that, for whatever reason, have evolved to have very important functions in influencing human physiology. And so you can, you can immediately see that our human bodies have, in a sense, become dependent on some of the chemicals that are produced by bacteria. And that's just a profound change in how we understand being human, uh, that we depend on microbes for our healthy functioning. And another illustration of how you know the these this interdependence has has evolved over time is our small intestine includes cells in that epithelial lining that are called microfold cells. And if you look at these microfold cells under an electron microscope, they have almost like little tentacles that reach out into the the lumen, the space inside the intestine. And very elegant studies have been done where certain types of bacteria are put into the gut lumen. And within one hour, you can visualize with electron microscopy that these bacteria are, in a sense, grabbed by these microfold cells. They pull the bacteria inside the cell. And then the cell extrudes the bacteria into the body where these bacteria are then phagocytized by innate immune cells like macrophages or dendritic cells within one hour. And then that, it, you think about that and you think, oh, wait a minute, why is our body doing that? Because that, those are our cells that are grabbing bacteria, pulling them inside the cell and then extruding them into the body. And then you just have to ask, why? why? have we evolved to, in a sense, sample microbes from our environment on a daily basis? And, and is that not clear yet, the why? I think we have some clues. Um, and some of these clues come from mouse models, which are models of germ-free animals. So these animals don't have a gut microbiome. They don't have any bacteria. And they're maintained in isolators, kind of like the, the boy in a bubble uh, in Texas, you know, that had to be maintained in a completely sterile environment. 
But what we've learned looking at germ-free animals is that these are these are very unhealthy animals, and their immune system is highly underdeveloped. One example of that is a very important type of immune cell is a regulatory T cell. So T cells are okay. T helper cells, and these T cells are really on the one hand they're responsible for driving inflammatory responses. Yeah, and that's mediated by T helper type one cells or T helper type two or T helper type 17 cells. So TH1, TH2, TH17. And these are T cells that primarily drive inflammatory responses to. Okay. So these are like white blood cells, T cells? Exactly. Yeah. And so there's there, these three are pro-inflammatory. Exactly. They help the inflammation happen. Yeah. So they're involved in our immune response to potential pathogens, for example. And we need those responses to protect ourselves from pathogens, pathogenic bacteria or viruses or even parasites, for example. And on the other hand is a regulatory T cell. And regulatory T cells are designed to keep that inflammation under control because if inflammation becomes inappropriately high, it begins to damage our own bodies. And so that is a very dangerous weapon inflammation and it's a double-edged sword okay you need inflammation to fight off pathogens but if you can't control the inflammation it begins to damage your own cells Mm -hmm. through collateral damage so the regulatory t-cells are there to keep the inflammation under control and to resolve the inflammation over time once the infection has been resolved. Or the tissue damage, as it were. Yeah. Because inflammation also helps with injury, right? Exactly. So, you know, one thing that we're learning is, you know, you can have an inflammatory response to bacteria, for example, pathogens. But our own cells release proteins called damage-associated molecular patterns, or GAMs. Uh, a classic one is HMGB1. It's a protein that's normally found in the, the nucleus of all human cells. And if that cell becomes damaged, it releases this protein. Is that kind of like when a bee gets hurt and they send out a pheromone and the bees come and attack? Kind of like like there's a signaling there? Yeah, when... yeah. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, the cell's way of signaling that, hey, there's some tissue damage here. You know, we need, we need some backup. We need to resolve this tissue damage and repair the wound, right? So it's a signal to the body that impacts the immune functioning. And what we're learning is that, in particular, HMGB1 actually binds to the same receptor that lipopolysaccharide binds to, which is coming from gram-negative bacteria in order to induce inflammation. That's profound. Okay, so there's a pattern there that's emerging, right? Yeah, I, I want to get I want to get back to that pattern, and that's on the immune side of the relationship with the microbiome. And you said there was a few ways the microbiome is communicating through the neuronal pathways, through the immune pathways, and then the chemical pathways. And you suggested that we're actually quite dependent on bacteria for survival. Yeah, so you know, maintenance of regulatory T cells is clearly one important function, that's the immune side. But if we think about metabolites, one of 
One, one great example of how bacterially derived metabolites are important for our own health is uh, what are called short-chain fatty acids. And okay. these are molecules that are almost entirely produced by bacteria. And the main source of these short-chain fatty acids, including butyrate, is fiber that comes from plants. And fiber is a molecule that our human cells don't have the enzymatic capacity to metabolize, but bacteria do. So when you consume fiber, you're essentially consuming food for the good bacteria in your gut microbiome. And that's one reason it's a, it's a good idea to consume lots of fiber because you want to essentially farm those good microbes and feed them and promote their growth and proliferation. And in turn, you know, we're feeding them, but in turn they're making all this butyrate and butyrate is the predominant source of energy for those epithelial cells that maintain the lining of our gut mucosa. And without butyrate, their function becomes severely impaired. And so we're relying on the production of this metabolite that's produced by bacteria for the health of our own human cells. It's very humbling. And, and I, a minute ago, I was thinking uh, when you said how dependent we were, I was thinking, are, the, are, are bacteria farming us? <laughs> like, are, are we their product? Are they working us for their own end? You know? Yeah. Who's really in control here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who is in control? But actually there's a deep and I guess dependence, but it sounds like there's also in, interdependence. Yeah. You know, one of the, in my medical practice, one of the things I tell people, the reason to have whole foods and, and fiber in their diet is it helps titrate the level of glucose in the body, right? If you take all the glucose, all the fiber out of an apple and you drink apple juice, no bueno. If you eat an apple, great, right? And that fiber is the same amount of sugar content, but it's, it's really, um, it's a different relationship with the sugar content, a different pacing, a different timing. So I like to think of fiber in relationship to the, the digestive process in terms of it slowing things down for the body to manage the rate of glucose absorption or fructose um, in this case. But then, uh, but now you're, you're really bringing in, there's this really deep pattern or ancient relationship between bacteria, which are not, which are guests. And we, this relationship with the microbiome and that fiber, actually, when we eat fiber, we're actually serving the bacteria, which are serving us. And it's just such a, a web. It's such a beautiful, amazing rich image uh, you're painting here for me yeah i mean it, it's worth pointing out if it's not obvious already but that there's there's never been a vertebrate organism that we know of that has existed in the absence of a microbiome it's just not possible and so vertebrates have never existed without these bacteria and so what do you do with that when you, when you meditate on that in, in terms of what's your response to that truth? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, for me, it just it really highlights that there's a, a deep, deep ancient relationship between microbes and, and us as vertebrates and humans and yeah. animals and, and, 
it really emphasizes that isolating ourselves from this deep ancient relationship is not possible or desirable or in, in any way beneficial. And in fact, we know it's detrimental to try to, to um, you know, limit our, our bacterial exposures, for example. And that's the whole basis of the, the hygiene hypothesis or the old friends hypothesis, biodiversity hypothesis, is that as, as humans moved into urban environments, we've lost exposure to the, the very highly diverse microbial environments that we find in nature or find on farms with farm animals. And as we lose these exposures, we lack the training that's necessary to induce these regulatory T cells and promote adequate immunoregulation. And the consequence of that is, while infectious disease has been declining dramatically since 1950, non-communicable diseases that are driven by inflammation have been rising dramatically in urban environments. And that includes things like allergies, asthma, type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis. Uh, and we think even mental health, risk of mental health disorders is impacted by this loss of diverse microbial exposures. So I want to get to the, um, the mental health aspect with the microbiome, but I just really want to almost pause here and look at the depth of what, what the migration into urban environments is, and what you're suggesting in relationship with the human body. And you, you mentioned the old friends hypothesis or not is it the old friends hypothesis is yeah. that the theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you, and you explained it rather obliquely. So for people who don't understand, cause we talked about T cell and the, the regulatory T cells and the helper T cells. And we started talking about the relation, the deep relationship with the world of bacteria and microorganisms. And then you obliquely explained what, what that was. So just say it explicitly. What is the old friend's hypothesis and why is it important in, in directly to what you're saying right now? Yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's best to go back to the original hygiene hypothesis. Um, okay. And then, you know, kind of explain the, the historical narrative. So the hygiene hypothesis was put forward by David Strachan, who was an immunologist in London uh, around 1990. And he, he made the observation that if you had, had older siblings, you had a lower risk of developing uh, allergic asthma. And he reasoned at the time that, well, this is because if you have older siblings, they go to daycare and they come home and bring infections home and you get infections earlier in life and you get more exposure to an infectious organisms that then train the immune system in a way that protects you from developing allergic asthma as you get older. And so this, this effect um, is, is very profound and it's been, it's been highly replicated. But my colleague, Graham Rook, in 2004, really became concerned about some of the messaging behind this idea that we're too clean 
Um, because as we all learned in the COVID-19 pandemic, we, we need to wash our hands um, frequently to avoid, uh, you know, infections, including COVID-19. And, and so personal hygiene is actually really important to protect us from disease. But there's, there's something m- much more um, pervasive about exposure to microorganisms many of which do not cause disease. And so to really shift the emphasis toward those types of organisms that are in, in nature, in the environment, um, they include uh, certain types of viruses, bacteria, uh, even parasites that humans have been exposed to throughout human evolution. And exposure to all those types of organisms have declined since 1950, for example. And what we know is that many of those non-pathogenic organisms are able to drive these regulatory T cells that can keep inflammation under control. And as we've moved into urban environments, we've lost exposure. We've lost contact with exposure to these types of organisms, especially organisms in you know mud, mud, soil, water, fermenting vegetable matter, things that you might find on on farms, farm animals. And as we lose exposure to these types of organisms, our immune systems become more and more inflammatory in nature. And so um, that's that's essentially where we are now in terms of our understanding is that uh, over the last 50 or 70 years now, we've lost contact with those types of microorganisms. And in fact, when you look at something called the diversity of the gut microbiome, which we're learning is a really important feature of the gut microbiome, and the consensus is the more diversity you have, specifically in the gut microbiome, the more stress resilience you have, or the more optimal functioning you have. Um, that's related to high diversity of the gut microbiome. And one way of looking at the gut microbiome Diversity is how many different types of bacteria do you have in the gut microbiome, for example. And you can just count them after sequencing. And the more you have, we, we think the, the healthier you are. And can we put can we put numbers to that in terms of like eight, four hundred? Yeah. Like where are you at in terms of numbers in terms of diversity? Yeah, it's somewhat it's somewhat arbitrary because you know the number that of bacteria that you can detect in the gut microbiome depends on how deep your sequencing is uh, and how you categorize different species, for example. But let's say um, you know if we just count the number of observed species um, uh, or operational taxonomic units we might find 400 different types in the gut microbiome. The true number is probably more like 10,000 different types. Um, but you, <laughs> but you, ha- you have to do very deep sequencing and you know, very high resolution sequencing to really detect those, those differences. Yeah. So, so what you're saying actually is it, it's, it's at the level of detection you're working at, you're looking for diversity at that level yeah. as an indicator. It's not a true number, but it's like an approximation of, right. oh, we easily found with this system 50. We easily found 400. We could, even though we know there's a lot more going on. 
Yeah, so, I mean, the relative numbers are, you know, if you're using the same detection systems, the numbers, relative numbers are, are really informative. And so, for example, there's a, there's a very um, influential study that I think was published in Science, and they, they looked at the diversity of the gut microbiome in Amerindians, Yanomami Amerindians living in the upper Amazon basin, the Yanomami um, Amerindians. And what they discovered is that these people who have an incredibly diverse diet, they're hunter-gatherers, they're out in nature every day gathering food. In the soil, in the in water. In the soil, in the, in the water, yeah. and they're eating fish and frogs and all kinds of, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, different types of food. And what they found is that they had very high diversity of the gut microbiome, particularly if you compare them to people living in Omaha, Nebraska, for example. So Americans. And Even on the farms or city we talk in, in Omaha? Yeah, I think here in Omaha we're talking about city dwellers. Okay. And so, you know, there's a, there's a very clear distinction between hunter-gatherer communities and, let's say, average Americans. And the the alpha diversity in Americans is about half of what you might find in other, other populations. And so if you think about it at that level, perhaps we've lost half of the diversity of our gut microbiome living in a modern urban industrialized environment. With and more stressors. Yeah, with more stressors, and, and this <laughs> so is really—it's not just the the loss down there; it's the outward stressors well, too. Well, yeah, right? I mean, I, I think that's a really good point because we know stress. One of the most, one of the canonical responses to stress exposure in terms of the gut microbiome is a decrease in diversity. Yeah, let's and, talk about that. Let's start building yeah. that relationship because I think you laid out a really persuasive portrait of the connection between our environment, ecology, the need for diversity, the deep relationship we have with the microbiome. So I feel like we got a good sense of the gut. We got a good sense of the connection with the brain that that's happening in the immune system. Um, now we're looking at like, I want to look at that stress behavior and how the microbiome and the law, both bi-directional, as I understand it, it's both when we don't have the diversity it's affecting our behavior and our experience of stress and vice versa our behaviors and our stresses also affect the health of our microbiome do i have that bi-directional right yeah that's right that's a bi-directional okay. axis okay cool and then so what's going on there in terms of our our behavior our mental health and the microbiome and the the urban dilemma or the modern dilemma of where we're actually losing diversity of species in our gut microbiome. Yeah, so let's talk about each direction of the bidirectionality in turn. And let's start by talking about the effects of stress on the gut microbiome. And we we know that after stress exposure, one of the the, the principal responses that you see is a decrease in diversity of the gut microbiome. But that kind of um, is only part of the story because it seems that one of the reasons that the diversity is decreasing is because stress creates an opportunity for what might be called pathobionts to proliferate. And stress is creating a, a microenvironment in the gut mucosa 
that seems to be favorable for the growth and proliferation of certain types of bacteria. And some of these bacteria can uh, cause pathology if they're allowed to proliferate excessively. And so in some of our studies, we found that stress exposure in mice, for example, resulted in a, th a th three order of magnitude increase in the relative abundance of a, a type of bacterium called helicobacter. And these specific species of helicobacter are found in the colon, which is where the majority, you know, the vast majority of microbes are found in the gut microbiome. And we know that simply having helicobacter, if you don't have good immunoregulation, if you can't mount a strong regulatory T cell response, is sufficient to, do, to induce colitis, spontaneous colitis. So in, in induction of inflammation in the colon, which then can have downstream consequences, such as systemic inflammation, neuroinflammation, and even anxiety. And so that's all a response to proliferation of um, these types of bacteria that can cause pathology. Another good example is um, not stress per se, but repeated exposure to antibiotics allows the proliferation of C. difficile, which causes C. diff infection. And so it's typically a series of antibiotics exposure that's killing off this amazing diversity of the gut microbiome. And once you lose that diversity, that creates an opportunistic window for C. diff to proliferate and expand and begin to induce pathology. So you can see how stress, decreased diversity, antibiotic exposure, et cetera, can induce conditions that allow kind of the bad guys to get the upper hand. Mm -hmm. uh, These aren't the old friends. These would all be like pro-inflammatory exactly. and out-compete exactly. beneficial cooperative bacteria. Yeah, so the old friends kind of keep these bad guys at bay, like C. diff and helicobacter species. So that's kind of the stress effect on the microbiome. Um, Can we pause there for one sec? Yeah, I, yeah. I want to. I really want to look at this idea of stress because stress is used as such a bucket word for so many different things. And I just want to be clear: what kind of stress are you talking about for the mice, maybe, but and for us in particular around? Oh, that's impacting our GI system and the health of our microbiome. Are we talking like a single stressor? Are we talking chronic stress? What do you, what's your gradation there? Because I think it's important to get clear so everybody doesn't feel like every time they get a stress. They get stressed out, right? Yeah. So single profound stressors or traumatic stressors can have really profound effects on the microbiome. Mm -hmm. um, that's clear. But kind of, you know, everyday stressors, someone cutting you off on the freeway, um, you know, they, these aren't going to typically affect the microbiome in a profound way. But um, stress can, you know, in the stress research field, stressors come in different flavors. You can have physical stressors. Uh, this could be heat or, you know, um, osmotic stressors, other types of physical stressors. These can activate the HPA axis. Inflammation is a stressor, also activates the HPA axis. Stress biologists have come up with different ways of describing these types of stressors as physical stressors, interoceptive stressors, 
Um, and that's opposed to what we might call um, psychological stressors or anticipatory stress or mm -hmm. extraceptive stress. And these are stressors that are really based on our perception of threats. It might come from our environment or an anticipated threats or threats from other human beings and the you know, difficult work environment, for example. Right, right. And all of those things like can happen. Abu abusive boss, for instance, yeah, would be exactly. one of those. Yeah. Exactly. And we know that's important. So, um, you know, we, we have seen studies showing that this kind of subordinate hierarchical structure in the workplace has really profound effects on. Yeah, the, with human, the Whitehall study, right? Yeah, the Whitehall study. Two Whitehall studies. In yeah. London. Uh, and we know that, you know, even people that are one level down in the in the hierarchy in Whitehall, the civil uh, servant government offices in London, for example, have higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease, but also have higher risk of having elevated markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein and silicon-6. And those markers of inflammation can predict depressive symptoms even 10 years later in, in that population. Amazing. So we, we know these types of stresses are, are really important. So thank you for clarifying that. I think you're talking about chronic stress, uh, significant levels of stress, not working out daily stress or you know daily management of life, but it's a buildup. And it's always hard to kind of know where that threshold is, I would imagine. Um, and maybe that gets into interoception and the perception of how stressed you actually feel. I don't know. That's a really important point as well, as we know that perception of stress is extraordinarily important. And um, for example, when stressors are perceived to be controllable, there's very few negative outcomes. Whereas when stressors are perceived to be uncontrollable, there can be very severe negative outcomes. And yeah. over the years, we've learned about some of the biology of the difference between controllable stressors and uncontrollable stressors. And when a stressor is perceived to be controllable, that actually engages neurons in the prefrontal cortex, this very sophisticated part of the brain that's responsible for cognitive and effective executive functions. And those neurons project down to the brainstem, the reptilian brain, and they shut off serotonin neurons that are involved in promoting and exaggerating anxiety responses. <laughs> Wait, you're telling me serotonin exaggerates? Because everybody's like, oh, I need more <laughs> serotonin to feel calm. You've confused <laughs> me. What's going on? Without going too long, what's the, what's the one minute on uh, that? Yeah, very briefly. Much of my early work was focused on serotonin systems. Yeah in the brain. And what we learned is that as opposed to what is commonly believed where you might think of serotonin as a monolithic system, right? That's involved in, you know, feeling good. What we're finding is that there's a very small subset of serotonin neurons that seem to promote that sense of feeling good, the antidepressant uh, effects. There are other serotonin neurons that very clearly potentiate anxiety um, and anxiety behavior. And there's even other serotonin systems that are very selectively involved in inhibiting panic attacks, for example, in response to lactate or other panicogenic stimuli. 
So Certo is much, yeah, much more complicated. Yeah, it's much, it always is. It always yeah. is, isn't it? That's biology. That's the, that's the beauty of biology, oh, yeah. right? It's not simple. Yeah. Well, that, you know, it's funny, but in Chinese medicine, one of the, when I first started studying it, I was somewhat confused because the method of validation was very different. It was less consequential cause and effect and more uh, pattern recognition. And sometimes there would be theories in, or there are theories in the practice where things could work both ways, like things had a dual purpose. And it, so it had more of that homeostatic, not one-sidedness to it. It kind of graded across my Western orientation growing up that, well, if it goes that way, it doesn't do the other thing too. And so sometimes there's acupuncture points or herbs or things that have uh, functions on both sides of the fence, as it were. Um, I want to bring us back to this, this sense of the stress. So we, we did the top-down stress affecting the microbiome. And I think you were about to go towards the mental health and the behaviors that actually come out of our relationship with the microbiome. I know we're trying to get done in about 12 minutes here because to honor time. So I want to go, go towards what are things we can do in relationship to, with all this knowledge too. So trying to get those last two things in if we can. Yeah. So let's start with, you know, the effects of the microbiome on, on mental health. And, you know, it's interesting from the pers perspective of the hygiene hypothesis and, and more specifically something called the farm effect. Um, and the, the farm effect is so highly replicated now that it's just called the farm effect. And, this was really developed by Erica von Muschus and her colleagues in Germany. And what they found is that if you grow up on a farm, you have protection from allergic airway inflammation, uh, allergic asthma as an adult. And now we're learning that this is because of exposure to these diverse microbial environments that you find on farms with farm animals. And, and so uh, my colleagues and I were interested in the idea that maybe um, the farm effect not only applies to allergic airway inflammation, but also to risk of mental health uh, conditions. And so uh, Stefan Reber and his colleagues in University of Ulm in Germany designed a study to expose people to a psychological stressor, which we know is a risk factor for development of mental illness, anxiety and depression, for example, and brought 20 young men that grew up on farms with farm animals into a clinic and exposed these individuals to a psychosocial stressor called the Trier social stress test. It's a very effective way in, in inducing a stress response in humans. Um, and in contrast, brought 20 young men that grew up in cities of at least 100,000 people without pets into the clinic. And interestingly, the, the young men that grew up on farms reported feeling more anxious and also had exaggerated HPA axis responses to the stressor. But if you looked at the immune system, the people that grew up in cities had much exaggerated inflammatory responses to the psychosocial stress. Mm. And, and that included increases in secretion of pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6 in response to immune cell stimulation. And so on the one hand, um, you know, people that grew up on farms were really uncomfortable coming into a clinic and uh, experiencing this stressor, but their immune system was able to resolve the inflammatory response in a relatively short period of time, meaning two hours, whereas people that grew up in cities were not able to do that. And that really, you know, 
it, it leads to the idea that those of us that, that grew up in cities, in modern urban environments, every time we experience a psychosocial stressor, even though we can't detect it or we're not aware of it, we're, we're experiencing a, an exaggerated inflammatory response, these types of stressors. And that's yeah. every day. And over a lifetime, that can create a higher risk of inflammatory disease, but also mental health conditions that are associated with inflammation. Yeah. I mean, it brings up so much about the threat aspect of it and a little bit of the interoception in terms of how we sense ourselves. And when you say we can't know whether we're inflamed or not, but in some ways we can digestively feel I think in the class you talked about the training and the training talked about that we can feel bloating or we might feel more pain or we might have a more sensitive digestive system at that level that we can feel the inflammation. And I'm also just wondering, like, I'm just flashing through a few things. I'm just going to lay them out there because it's how I podcast. But one of the things I was flashing through was sterile homes, you know, that feeling of going into certain homes and just feeling like, the life's not there, you know, there's mm. something there missing, you know, and I'm thinking about that farm thing and God, I wish I'd had this conversation when my kids were young. Cause I would have put them in 4-H <laughs> <laughs> like, just like, let's go, you know, and, and, and I'm flashing through a few other things of, of that I've been wanting to talk about around the communication of the microbiome and what it tells us and what it shows us. And if there are ways we are actually perceiving it more than we would normally recognize because it hasn't been in our vision. In other words, are we in a deeper communication that we can't consciously perceive, but it is affecting our behavior and guiding some of, some of us more, right? So I'm just starting to like put it together, this relationship that we have and, and kind of chewing on some things as it were about that, the presence of the microbiome can I feel when it's present and can when I feel when it's not present and the life energy that I feel in a, uh, in a, on a farm or the life energy I feel out in nature or in a forest or, and then when I'm in sterile environments in the city or when I'm in Walmart and I'm just going like, Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, am I actually at some level that response I have about those environments that I like and dislike are those actually some level cues at a deeper intelligence that are taking place? Total theory, total guessing, but it actually matches. It actually matches the story of what environments I like and they're healthy for me at a microbiome level and what they're not. Okay. I just went really California on you here. So. Yeah, no, I love that question. And in fact, no one's ever asked me that question. So you really have me thinking here. And I think, you know, my initial response was, my my initial thinking was yeah well I, I don't think we can tell um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase that because um, you know in the study in Germany for example there's a dissociation between our emotional response to the stressor the anxiety that is experienced and that we can report self-report oh yeah I'm feeling really anxious and also the HPA axis you know those those were highly activated in people that grew up on the farm but their immune system was nicely resolved and and in contrast the people that grew up in cities had an exaggerated inflammatory response but generally speaking are not going to be aware that they're having this profound inflammatory response you the way you phrase the question it makes me think that if we were if we were trained to to be perceptive of those signals the signals are there 
And the reason I say that is because of something called interoception, which you've mentioned. And there are direct connections between the gut mucosa, which is detecting the microbiome and the microbial metabolites and the local immune function, and the spinal cord. And from the spinal cord, there's projections up to the brainstem, which is called the spinal parabrachial tract. But there are also projections that go all the way up to the thalamus, which is kind of our sensory, uh, you know, central, you know, central station, and and there those signals um, are going to parts of the cortex called the insula, and the insula has a homunculus, so that information is telling us, oh, where is this signal coming from? Oh, that those are the butterflies in my stomach, right? So it can tell you, oh, that's where that's where I'm experiencing this. But there are other there are other projections that go to the prefrontal cortex, including the medial orbital frontal cortex. And the medial orbital frontal cortex is a part of the uh, the prefrontal cortex that, that's very much involved in our hedonic circuits, our ability to experience pleasure. And so, it's it's certainly possible that if we were able to somehow train ourselves to become aware of those types of signals coming from uh, the gut microbiome, maybe we could actually develop an awareness. Um, I think, you know, for most of us, we don't have a basis for training. We don't have a way of associating, oh, that's a good thing happening there in the gut microbiome. And that makes me feel good, right? I have a really positive feeling about that. But I I think if we had ways to train ourselves to respond to those signals, then certainly the, the, the interceptive mechanisms are there to, to, to sense and perceive them. Yeah. I, I, I would push back a little bit. I, I love your answer. I love that you engaged it and you took it seriously when I felt like I was you know, coming out of left field. So I really appreciate that. And that there's architectural basis for possibility and that, that you know that. I think that's amazing. Um, and then secondly, that don't you think food is a kind of training? Like I know when I eat things and they don't work for my body and I'm inflamed and I know when I feel good. Like if I eat sauerkraut, I'm like, oh, my body's like, I feel good. If I start my day with kale, I feel good. If I start with a pastry, I don't. And and so I, I do feel like there is a way in which we are in the practice of communication in some ways already um, with food. And, and I, I do want to go towards with a few minutes left to talk about where we go or where do you go or where do you recommend people go in relationship to the, the reality? <laughs> and we only have a small glimpse of it, of the microbiome world, that the, the bacteria that's been here since the beginning of life are informing, cooperating, challenging us, sometimes harming us, and that we have this deep behavioral relationship that somehow um, we're, we're, we're engaged in and there's no way out of it. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the place to end is really, you know, to focus on what we can do on a day-to-day basis to kind of enhance our, our microbiome and uh, our overall health and stress resilience. And I think the one, the one um, d- despite whether, you know, regardless of whether we can perceive these changes or not, I think it's very clear that our diet has a major impact on the microbiome. And one thing we've learned is that one of the main ways that we can impact the diversity of the gut microbiome is by the number of different plants 
that we consume. And one of the reasons that is makes makes sense and is intuitive is that each plant has its own microbiome. And I like to quote a paper that shows that a three to four leaf spinach plant has a over 800 different species of bacteria inside the plant. So when you eat a healthy plant, the plant has a healthy ecosystem. You eat the healthy ecosystem. You are then exposed to the health, healthy microbial ecosystem, and that enhances your, your microbial diversity. And we know that from the American Gut Project that you know, if you compare people that report eating 30 different types of plant um, species over the last week, they have a much higher diversity of the gut microbiome than people that report eating zero or one to five. And that's been highly replicated in the field now. And so I'm constantly looking for ways to eat more plants or different types of plants. Um, and, you know, even even challenging my kids to do so. And one, one of the things that I've, I've talked about is, you know, preparing a shake that has 30 different plants in it. And I'm happy to report that my 13-year-old now drinks, has this drink every <laughs> night and actually asks for the drink. Um, wow. you know, and this is a, this is a 13 year old. And so, but I think it, it, you know, that once you understand that that is like, that is the way, right. To, yeah to, to provide, to give our bodies the best opportunity. It's, it's highly motivated. And once you realize that that then impacts our mental health, then I think you realize the stakes are really high. You know, if, if I want to feel good, I need to make these kinds of lifestyle choices. Well, there's so much I'm still totally fascinated and interested in so many other things I, I have on my notes that I wanted to talk about. And I will say that I love that you've dedicated your life to this world where stress and the microbiome and brain and the gut and behavior where they all meet and that you took the time to be with us today. I really, really appreciate you, Christopher, for showing up. And uh, yeah, thank you for doing your life the way you're doing it and sharing the information. It's really wonderful. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You can support the How Humans Work podcast by sharing the shows with your people, your family, your friends, your community. And you can keep it ad-free by making a donation to our Venmo at HHW underscore pod. I appreciate your support. All music is performed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about our guest, the show, or Jeffrey's work helping people make peace with their human nature, you can go to howhumanswork.us.